Jack spoke last night about enlightenments. And I've heard this talk a number of times. It's a beautiful talk. And he said one of the uh, examples he gave was the proclamation of awakening from Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, who said to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And to study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to awaken with the myriad things or to awaken with or to be intimate with all things. And I love that understanding of Dogen's. It's one of my favorites. And really we could sum up the whole retreat with just that teaching. We study the Buddha way to study the self. That what we've been doing here is studying the self, studying the way the self arises, the way it manifests, the unique ways that it shows itself depending on who we are and our conditioning and our background and our culture and our race and our country and our language. And then how it starts to become more transparent. Or, or as Dogen would say, we start to forget the self. The self becomes not preeminent. And as it loses its preeminence, something else begins to happen. We begin to awaken with everything, with each moment. But you already heard about that last night. So tonight what I'd like to do is begin with what Dogen went on to say after he said that. To study the Buddha way is to study the self, to study the self, to forget or let go of the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. And then he goes on to say, to awaken with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind and the body and minds of others. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. Everybody understand that? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Drop off body and mind and the body and mind of others. Right? To awaken with the myriad things is to let go of our concretization of ourself, of our bodies, of the bodies and minds of others. The ideas that we often live through, whether it's about who we are or who others are, and as those start to let go, that's awakening with the myriad things. And we begin to see what's here, fresh, new, alive, present, not bound by our concepts and our ideas in the past. And then he goes on to say, no trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues 
endlessly. We can't nail down enlightenment. The mind wants to make it a thing, like it wants to make us a thing, or you a thing, or everybody a thing, a something. Enlightenment is not a state of mind. No trace of enlightenment remains and this no trace continues endlessly. There's nothing to hold on to. There's no one to hold on to anything. There's no need to hold on to anything, even the idea of enlightenment. And so there may be something more fundamental than the idea of enlightenment. And I think it's a really good idea, don't you? Enlightenment, what a great story, huh? Buddha, he went off, he did it, he got there. Look at him now. (laughs) Totally happy. Doesn't even move much these days. Hanging out, him and his mom. What could be better? (laughs) Every boy's dream. I believe Dogen is pointing at is something more than just some idea of enlightenment or that enlightenment becomes something fixed, but that there's something mysterious happening here. And enlightenment is part of that mystery. The self is part of that mystery. The fact that there's even no self is part of that mystery. The fact that everything is empty is part of this mystery. The fact that everything appears in emptiness is totally mysterious. I edited out a quote. It's gone. It always happens in the mystery talk. There's always something missing because you can't control it the mystery. We don't know what's going to happen. Even when we have a good idea. Anybody know what was going to happen on this retreat? Right? I mean, actually, you all knew. You were going to come, silence, sit, walk. You've all done retreats before. You all knew what was going to happen, didn't you? No. <laughs> There's no way we had some idea, the form, you know, the basic outline. But within that, the life that actually happens is totally mysterious. The Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu says, 
where the mystery is the deepest, is the gate of all that is subtle and sublime, all that is wonderful. And so mystery is one of the understandings of letting go. That it's a mystery of what's happening here. I mean, really, if you think back, can you remember some of your expectations about the retreat before you came? You know, or some of your assumptions or beliefs? One of the beauties of the teachings of Suzuki Roshi was his emphasis on beginner's mind. And, and what's beautiful is when you're a beginner, you have it naturally, right? You have it naturally. And then it's a little harder as we practice for, you know, five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years to have beginner's mind. But one of the characteristics of awakening is that freshness, that not knowing, the beginner's mind. You know, he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. We don't practice to attain. We practice to let go, to be open to see what is reality going to show us next? What is the Dharma going to teach us next? Not what are we going to get. I'm so happy the frogs are here tonight because I have a frog story. This was in one of the San Francisco papers. It said, in what the Acoustical Society of America termed a, quote, astounding, unquote, discovery, scientists are reporting Thursday that some frogs talk through their ears. UCLA researchers found that frogs use their ears as boomboxes and loudspeakers to amplify and broadcast plaintive croaks and ribbits. (laughs) You didn't know this, did you? A lot's happened in the world since you've been on retreat. The scientist who headed it up, he said, scientists previously assumed that frogs use their vocal sac to amplify and radiate sounds. And, you know, you all know, they go on to say the sac is an elastic pouch that amphibians can inflate like a balloon. It forces air through the larynx or the voice box, making the vocal cords vibrate and produce a characteristic sound. It it also says males produce an especially loud cry when seeking a mate. And so they, but they discovered that they're using the vocal sac to amplify and radiate sounds. That's what they assumed, right? They didn't know about this. And here's the key line. They said, but nobody bothered to check. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Nobody checked. And finally, somebody checked. (laughs) And they documented that bullfrogs, the largest frogs in North America, radiate 98% of their call through their eardrums, in addition to western chorus frogs, barking tree frogs, and others 
who also use their ears as loudspeakers, researchers reported. So you can relax about that now. <laughs> Frogs. <laughs> we know how they're doing it, don't we? <laughs> so part of entering the mystery or beginning to see through the truth of the mystery of what's here is to not know. And not knowing is also part of practice. It's an important part of letting go, of letting go of the knowing. Do you remember when you were young? Anybody have this experience? And you thought adults knew? Right? And then there's that, some, at some point, I don't know what the age is, you know, maybe six or eight or 10 or 11, definitely by 11, 12, you're starting to get the picture that they don't know. But we assume there's a kind of security in thinking that adults know. And it's so nice, that security, until you find out or you become an adult, Right? And then you see how much adults don't know. And my favorite Dharma book, one of my favorite Dharma book titles is called Freedom from the Known by Krishnamurti. How many people here have read Freedom from the Known? Anybody? few people. I never read it. I read the title, and that was it. <laughs> He, he nailed it in the title, I thought. I didn't want to know what he had to say about it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I mean, what, what are you going to say after that? <laughs> uh, a little louder? Yeah. How's that? One of, uh, I believe, Trudy's teachers, his teaching was, only don't know. Is that right? And I, I saw Sun Samim, and he was like, don't know. And he picked up a glass of water. He says, what is this? If you say it's a water, I'll hit you. And he had a little stick, right, that he used to carry? He used to bang it, you know, for a little emphasis. He'd say, if it's not, if you say it's not water, I'll hit you. And then he would give the Zen teaching by drinking the water. Notice what happens when we start anticipating what's going to happen. Or how is it to rest in the not knowing? You know, I bet you assume I'm going to talk the whole time. It'd be a really good Dharma talk if I stopped right now. 
that would be <laughs> would definitely be a little more Zen flavor. But <laughs> a student was listening to Suzuki Roshi, who was talking about the Dharma and talking about the first principle. And the student finally raised his hand and said, you talked about the first principle again, and I still don't know what it is. And Suzuki replied, I don't know is the first principle. <laughs> and, and the understanding of the value of not knowing, it's, it's not just in our tradition. It's really, it's really about life. It's really about all traditions, about how important it is to let go of our knowing and to open to the freshness of what's here. And this is, this is an old Dharma story. Many of you have heard it, but I can't resist. It's in the, from the Jewish tradition about a rabbi in a village in Russia. He's lived there his whole life. Every morning gets up, walks to synagogue. And there's a Cossack who lives in the village. He knows the rabbi his whole life. And one morning, the rabbi's walking, and the Cossack, you know, he's kind of kidding. He's bored. He's kidding around. He says, oh, rabbi, where are you going? The rabbi says, don't know. The Cossack's like, come on, you've lived here, and, you know, what do you, why are you, why are you dis, dissing me here? You know, you've lived here all your life, you tell me you don't know, come, you come with me, and he grabs him, he gets a little pissed at the rabbi, and he grabs him, and he takes him, and there's a little, teeny little jail, a little door, and he says, here, you stay here, and he's about to close the door, and the rabbi looks at him, he says, you see, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> The conceptual knowledge that we have, the habitual lives that we lead at times, veil what's not known. It gets in our way a little bit. It binds us to the known, so we're not really living with that freedom from the known. Even Jack's talk last night, the, what can be uh, difficult is then we start having more conceptual knowledge about different ways different people have enlight- you know, achieved enlightenment or awakening. And then all of a sudden we think that's how it has to be for us. And it may happen like that for us, but maybe it'll happen in some way it's never happened before for you. Are you open to that possibility? Are you open to not knowing how awakening's going to erupt through you? Maybe it'll be very different from the Buddha's awakening or Ajahn Chah's or Buddha Dasa or, you know, whoever it might be. Can you tolerate that level of not knowing? H.L. Mencken said, he said, penetrating so many secrets, we cease to believe in the unknowable. But there it sits, nevertheless, calmly licking its chops. We, we lull ourselves into a certain kind of security by thinking that we know what the hell is going on. 
And, you know, we know a little bit. I don't mean to, you know, we don't have to deny that. You know, the, the Zen flavor is not knowing doesn't mean you don't know. So it's important to say that. In other words, we know what we know, but we don't want to be limited by that. We don't want to cut off. We don't want to use that to make ourselves feel safe and secure when there's something even more secure, which is not knowing. Something even safer is living in the aliveness and the freshness and the immediacy of now, rather than in the idea of now, or the memory of what we think now is. It's also said in the Dharma, it says, um, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. That there's an intimacy that we love when we let go of our knowing. And again, the, the example I, I think of, it's like making love. You know, when you first meet someone and you don't know them, and they're so interesting, they're so fascinating, and you just want to spend time with them and see who is that person and what are they about. And you just want to know everything about them because you don't know. And it's just, it's just alive to be with them about six months or eight months or a year. And, and then we forget that we don't know who they are. We think we know who they are. All these ideas kind of accumulate and actually really kind of in some way become kind of leaden in our consciousness and really obscure the reality of that being. And then maybe we break up after a year. And then two years later, we, we run into this person. It's like, oh, my God, this person is so cool. Why, what happened? Why didn't, I, why, why didn't I see that? It's because we've forgotten who they were, thank goodness. And now we can actually see them alive and fresh and immediate again. Actually, the root of the word uh, intimacy is intus, I-N-T-U-S. The, it, 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 um, oh, let me just think, intus means of the hidden, of the hidden. That there's always something hidden with true intimacy. There's always a mystery with true presence, with really being intimate with this moment, with this body, with this heart, with this mind. That there's always more to learn. This, here's the other way to think about the not knowing. It's not that we don't know. We do know things and we learn things. But what's mysterious about reality is what's possible to know about reality is infinite. There's no end to our learning. This is the other side. There's not, no end to what we can know and how our knowing can continue to open and into new understandings, new realization, new awakening, new maturity, more maturity.
Stephen Batchelor, he says, as mindful awareness becomes stiller and clearer, experience becomes not only more vivid, but simultaneously more baffling. The more deeply we know something in this way, the more deeply we don't know it. Even now, just as you sit here and this just not even moving, just feel your body or feel your breath. And just for a moment, don't know it and see what it's like. See what the actuality is rather than the idea of it is. This beautiful, magical, mysterious display of what? Reality, emptiness, true nature, however you want to say it. It's already here in its mysterious and magical form. And sometimes it makes people nervous and sometimes it's exciting when this starts to open in practice, when we start to see how much we don't know. And not only do we let it grow of our attachments to views and to opinions, but also to the ideas or to the concepts even attachment to Buddhism. This is from one of my teachers named Jack Cornfield, who said, living fully means jumping into the unknown, dying to all our past and future ideas, and being present with things just as they are. It is only by such surrender to the moments of truth that we can participate in the mystery of our life. In some sense, all our practice is to let go so we can be here for this, this mystery, this ordinary mystery, right? Of somebody talking and somebody listening. It could be more mysterious. Dothan? Sadabara Dandi Ola. Jonkyanka? Right? It could be a little more mysterious. But what's mysterious is you actually think you're understanding me when I talk like this. <laughs> Secretly, we give talks, and then when you ask questions, we all talk about, oh, is that what they heard? <laughs> what, what? <laughs> uh, and, and even with the mystery, you know, we all, there's this flavor of mystery, and we think, oh, the mystery, I want the mystery, and we reach in to grab it. We think we're going to get the mystery. What's beautiful about the mystery is you go and you reach and you reach in for it and your hand disappears. We disappear in the mystery. EQ, the great rogue Zen monk, he said, this brick house I live in is really the sky and just as precious This brick house I live in is really the sky 
and just as precious. So I want to tell you a more detailed Zen story, and then I'll give a little commentary on it. And it's a Zen story I love. It's not for everybody. And so it's fine if you don't like it. You may not. And the story goes this way. Zen master Satsugan told his student Jijo, if you meditate single-mindedly without interruption for seven days and nights and yet do not attain enlightenment, realization, you can cut off my head and make my skull into a night soil scoop. Okay, everybody got that first part? (laughs) Not very long after that, Jijo came down with a case of dysentery. Taking a bucket to a secluded place, he sat on it and held his attention in right mindfulness. When he had sat on the bucket for seven straight days, one night he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight and felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. He had been absorbed in this state for a long time when he was startled into self-awareness on hearing a sound. He found his whole body running with sweat and his sickness had disappeared. In celebration, he wrote this verse. Radiant, spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. The spatula by the toilet, shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. So as I said, it may not be a story for everybody, but I like this story very much, and I'll tell you some of the reasons why. First of all, I want to be clear. If you meditate single-mindedly, this is what Satsugan said to Jijo, without interruption for seven days and nights, and yet still do not attain realization, you can cut off my head and make my skull into a night soil scoop. Everybody know what a night soil scoop is? No. It's a shit stick. Okay? In other words, you know, you have to go to the bathroom out in the woods and then you want to cover it up. You use the skull for that. Not a bad use of the skull. So Setsugan is very confident, right? You spend seven days and you really practice very, every moment for seven days, you'll awaken. And he's expressing his confidence to his student, Jijo. And he's really echoing the confidence of the Buddha. This is actually in the, in the um, uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness at the end, right at the end. He says, and if you practice in this way for seven years... And then he he downgrades. He says, no, if you practice in this way for seven months, every moment. And he says, no, if you practice in this way for seven weeks. And then he downgrades again and said, no, if you just practice in this way for seven days, you will have one of two results, one of two flavors of realization. And Satsugan echoes that. He knows that that's true. Also here, you have something that's really pretty classical in Zen stories, which is you have a relationship, the teacher-student relationship. Sometimes it's teacher-student, sometimes it's student-to-student or teacher-to-teacher. 
that the Dharma happens in relationship. That relationship is, is essential to the Dharma and to how it moves from heart to heart, from mind to mind. And in the Buddha's teaching, there's, there's a list that you won't hear about too often. It's called the Patihariya, the Patihariya. It's in the Theravada. It's, and it's a list of three. It's the three marvels or the three miracles ascribed to the Buddha or to an awakened one. And the first miracle is the miracle of magical powers. And there's all kinds of magical powers that come with practice. You know, moving through walls, flying through space, walking on water, uh, things like that. And if you want to read about it, there's a wonderful book about Deepama, who was one of Jack and Joseph and Sharon's teachers, who had these powers. Um, and the book is called Knee Deep in Grace. And you can you get a little flavor of it. And so there's that. Then the second marvel or miracle is the miracle of omniscience or mind reading. And that's a pretty more, a little more normal thing that people get as they get more sensitive, as the consciousness is more uh, purified and clear and open one will be sensitive to other beings. And you can you know, walk in a room and you can tell, oh my, that person's really upset or that person's really happy or that person's really... It's not that, you know, we all have some of that. But it develops. And the Buddha talked about those as marvels and miracles, but he didn't give them a lot of import. He said, they're okay. They're, they're good enough. But, but really, the, what he emphasized as the important marvel of miracle is the third one, and it's the marvel of instruction. It's the marvel that we learn one from another as human beings, that human knowledge, human understanding, the Dharma itself is transmitted person to person, heart to heart, mind to mind. That this this, um, uh, overlooked... uh, capacity is is a miracle, is a marvel, is something quite mysterious that this happens. That the teachings come through people. Now another part of this story that I like, it says, not very long after, Jijo came down with a case of dysentery Taking a bucket to a secluded place, he sat on it and held his attention in right mindfulness. How many people here have ever had dysentery? Yeah, just a few. It's something. It's intense. I had dysentery in Nepal some 30 years ago, maybe more. I was, I was there. I was new, you know, excited, happy to be in Kathmandu and felt like I was in the 16th century back then. It was really a while ago. And, and I remember I went out to, I didn't know where to eat one night, and I went out to this restaurant, Indira, it was called. It's an Indian restaurant. And when I got back, the people who I was hanging out with said, oh, you didn't eat there, did you? I said, yeah. They said, oh, that's the dirtiest kitchen in Kathmandu. And... If you've never been there, that's saying something to be the dirtiest <laughs> kitchen in Kathmandu. And so I got, I had dysentery, and it's very humbling. 
actually. <laughs> it's very humbling. I mean, I understand that, like sitting in right mindfulness for seven days on the pot, like Jija, right? You can spend a lot of time there with dysentery. And partly this points us at the vulnerability of practice, the vulnerability that's part of the path of practice. Right? He says, be mindful, and the first thing that happens is he gets sick. His vulnerability, our vulnerability, our human vulnerability shows itself. And you've all seen it here, what it is to be a human being, that we can't control our minds, we can't control our bodies, we can't control our hearts. Actually, we can't control anything. I hope you've seen that. And that coming into alignment with our vulnerability is a different kind of power than we may be used to. A different kind of power that's posited out in the world where the images for strength or power are, like, are, are about invulnerability. But the Dharma goes against that stream. The Dharma says, no, it is. Like, like Rilke says, he says, ultimately, it is on our vulnerability that we depend. That we allow the heart to open, that we see the temporality of this human form, of this body, the vulnerability of it to, to illness and to age the tenderness of our hearts, the sensitivity of our hearts, the pains of our hearts, they come forward here naturally because it's part of the path of awakening. And there are three words I, 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 that have come together in my mind about this. Humble is one. You know, it's humbling to feel our vulnerability. Also the word humus. They have the same root, humble and humus. Humus is of the earth. And, it's, and I tie it together with a Yiddish word called Hamish. And, they, and Hamish really means to be of the earth. And, and it, usually you would say somebody's Hamish if they have um, no heirs. They don't put on any heirs. They're, they're just who they are. You can count on them to be real. Or that they have a certain kind of integrity that's grounded in, in, in the earth, in reality. They've got their feet on the ground. And that's part of the movement towards awakening. Even with all the experiences, all the great experiences that can happen, all the wonderful states of heart and mind, ultimately, it's about being here. It's about showing up in a real way, in an authentic way, not not even through the trappings of our personality, but something even more authentic than that, more fundamental. There's that great song that I can't remember all the words, but some of them are, "'Tis a gift to be simple, "'tis a gift to be free, "'tis a gift to come down where we ought to be." Should we sing a little? Okay, Trudy's, Trudy's got me going here. <laughs> It's a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free, tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. When we find ourselves in the place that is right, we will be in the valley of love and delight. That's all I know. 
when we come down to right here, that's all we need. There's nothing really more than that. When we come into direct contact with our fragility and our vulnerability, it can be a gateway to the magical and the mysterious and the unknowable and the ungraspable truth. I'm remembering actually a personal story. I have a chronic illness and, um, you know, it'll probably be a problem at some point. It's not right now, I'm actually doing really well. But I remember I was teaching here and I got the call. I called my doctor and I knew, I, I had the intuition already, I knew, but I'd done the test. And I called my doctor from the teacher room right before I was supposed to give a talk, which is a bad idea about <laughs> calling anybody or looking at your emails right before you're going to give the talk. But, and she said, oh, do you want to do this on the phone? Right, so I knew, okay, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And she told me, yes, da da, da. And I remember coming in here and feeling so, like, just... You know, and it's like, not that I haven't known my body's vulnerable and I'm going to die, but getting that confirmation, right, I could just feel the, a whole nother level of fantasy about that I was going to live forever just, just was gone. And the vulnerability of it, the total, it was like, oh, there was nothing here to rely on except being present with the vulnerability. It was actually beautiful. And it doesn't mean there weren't all kinds of ups and downs and some reactions to it. But the actual vulnerability is so beautiful because it's true. We're totally vulnerable beings on the level of the body or the level of the heart. The good news is that vulnerability is a little bit the perception of the ego. We feel vulnerable or we feel like, you know, things can go and we can be hurt. But from the perception of true nature, it's really the perception of transparency. That there's nothing to hide, nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp. From the ego, vulnerability. From true nature, totally transparent. True nature does not feel vulnerable. That's the good news. So, it's, it's always been empty, always been full. This vulnerability also challenges our knowing, challenges conventional reality, consensus reality. You know, the trance that we all agree to about what's going on. And it's not that you have to get rid of that consensus reality or deny it, but again, not letting it, not letting it obscure the mystery of what's here and the magic of what's here. Here's another personal story. I, and again, not for everybody, but the, I like, I'm interested in the body and the different parts of the body and all kinds of stuff. So... I'm at the dentist one time, and they're doing a little teeny bit of gum surgery, and I asked if I could watch. And so they gave me a mirror, and it was just a local anesthetic. Well, it was just a little thing, 
Uh, I like that. Uh, iron. And then um, <laughs> they, um, at a certain point, they're fooling around in there, and they've got everything open. At a certain point, they, they cut the gum a little, and they peel it back. And you peel it back, and what's there? Oh, it's bones. You know, they peel back, and I'm looking, and in my mind, <laughs> I'm going, and this is what my mind did. It went, and it didn't do this on purpose. It just came, it said, I saw the bone, and I thought, this is not me. <laughs> and what happened was the whole idea that I was somebody having an experience shifted and it was like the awareness filled the room and it was like oh I was in the experience and I was watching the experience and they were in the experience it was like something released in my mind I you know, while I was watching, when I saw the bone, I realized, you know, I usually identify with my face and my body, and but the bone, nope, that's not me. <laughs> and boom, and it totally changed the whole usual foreground and background. Usually we think, oh, I'm here and I'm having this experience and you're there. That just totally shifted. I told my dentist, too. He's coming to Spirit Rock now, actually, my dentist. <laughs> and he has a lot more respect for me than he used to. It's interesting. <laughs> or for many years, I did hospice work. I worked with the Zen Hospice Project, which is really a wonderful teaching, training, practice, um, and uh, very interested in being with people when they were dying and uh, being awake to that process as much as possible and caring for people in the various stages before they died and then also being with the body after it dies to see what happens. You know, the body doesn't just stop there. The body keeps changing. It's really wild to sit with the body for a day or two or three and see what happens to a body. And of course, classically, this is all in the four foundations of mindfulness to, to be, sit with a, a dead body, one of the ways to contemplate the body. And early on, early on, I, uh, they, I was a good, good volunteer and, um, and I was with Zen Hospice Maitri, which was the little Zendo and hospice in the uh, Castro needed some help. And they had their first person they'd taken in during the AIDS epidemic. And um, so Zen Hospice sent me there, and I went. And this is with Isan Dorsey. And uh, you know Isan, yeah. If you didn't, he was, he was the real thing. He was a real Zen master, amazing guy. And and uh, I met Isan, and he said, "Okay, I'll take you in to meet, you know, um, JD, and then you'll I'll, you know, I'll do a shift four or five hours with JD, who was their first person there." And he takes me in. He doesn't tell me anything. JD is there, and he's lying there in his bed. His eyes are kind of rolled back, and he's like this. Okay, Isan introduces me to JD. JD didn't have a lot to say at the moment, but and Isan leaves, right? So okay, what do you do? I don't know what to do. You know, I'm with him. It seemed like nice thing to do was kind of hold his hands so they weren't flapping. So I just had my hands on him and hung out, and I'm talking to him a little bit as we hang there. He's not very, 
not really communicating with me. And at some point I have to feed him a little bit. I get little strawberries, cut them up into fourths or eighths and feed him and I could feed him and and a little bit of water, a teeny bit. He wasn't, he, they, they thought at that point that J.D. was going to die in the next few days. They were expecting that. And at a certain point, he wanted to be moved. He, you know, he said, he would, when he spoke, he would say, can you, can you move me? Can you move me over a little? He was just barely whispering. And, um, and so uh, he said, please, can you, you need to do something. And, and I hadn't really been trained well as a hospice volunteer. I didn't know, oh, there's ways to move people, which I learned later. But I'd gotten in kind of back door, which is the way I do things often. And and so I never had the real training. So I'm kind of moving JD and I'm bumbling around with it. And it's clearly, I'm feeling bad because, you know, it's not so easy to move him. And it's, I'm not making it so comfortable. And, and finally, I, I got him into position uh, uh, and said, okay, JD, how does that feel? And all of a sudden he said this. He said, it feels like I'm God and you're a saint. <laughs> Literally in that voice. You know, and I thought, maybe I don't know what's going on here exactly. <laughs> he might know a little more than me, J.D. And just so you know the story, J.D. ended up living quite a while, a number of years. It was, it was one of the weird things about Maitri Hospice. At first, nobody would die. It was just weird. And I think it was because of Isan and, and all the love that was there and how well people were treated. But, you know, like he was supposed to die a number of times. It didn't happen. Finally, they had to kick him out of the hospice. He'd been there six months. And, you know, anyhow, so. Oh. So um, where were we? The story, right? And then Gijo. Let's see. So Gijo sat in the bucket for seven straight days. One night, he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight and felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. And, you know, I was just sitting back at the forest refuge where I sat, and it snowed every day. And it was so beautiful. We had these full moons at night with the snow, and you'd go out, and it's just quiet. And there's no frogs. And, and <laughs> I, I don't need you now. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and it's so beautiful under bright moonlight, the white. One night we actually had a lightning storm in the snow at night. It was just amazing. And so Jijo has this experience, really, which he's describing one of those great states of mind, you know, which is just like, and you see that really the whole universe is too small to contain you, that the whole idea you're contained anywhere is just another idea. But it goes on and it says he had been absorbed in the state for a long time, and it's an absorption state, for a long time when he was startled into self-awareness with the sound. He wakes up, and he found his whole body running with sweat, and his sickness had disappeared. And this is entering the world of awakening, of the sickness being our delusion, or our confusion, or our misunderstanding, or our not seeing clearly. 
This is the entering the experience of freedom from the known. The experience, not the idea, the experience. And it can happen anytime, anywhere, any place. And actually to anyone. Sometimes it happens through meditation retreats, or sometimes it happens because we meet the Buddha and we have a dialogue with the Buddha or somebody. But I've, I've actually met people, worked with people, it just happened to them. They just they didn't even know what was happening. It was totally confusing. They had no context at all. But they knew something was happening. Something starts to fall away at times. This is from Tony Packer. She said, The emergence of blo- blo- and blossoming of understanding, love, and intelligence. Was this read here yet? No. Okay. Pardon? The emergence of, and blossoming of understanding, love, and intelligence has nothing to do with any tradition, no matter how ancient or impressive. It has nothing to do with time. It happens completely on its own when a human being questions, wonders, listens, and looks without getting stuck in fear, pleasure, and pain. When self-concern is quiet in abeyance, heaven and earth are open. The mystery, the essence of all life is not separate from the silent openness of simply being. And so Jijo, in his way, in his, through his tradition, he awakened after sitting in right mindfulness for seven days and nights. And as is often the case, is a celebration. It feels celebratory at a certain point. Like one recognizes, oh, this is freedom. And it's happy. It's good. It's a blessing. And so then there's a poem that comes, and he says, radiant, spiritual, what is this? The great Zen question, what is this? You know about the Zen master who came to the three-month course at Barry? He came, and they had a talk near the end of the three-month course, as Jack and Joseph would do, Sharon would do. And... um, he got up there. He says, three months meditation, waste of time. What is this? Because it's always about now. Like Ajahn Chah said to Jack, right? After he came back from his year, and t- Jack told him all the different experiences they are. He, he didn't just say, oh, you know, more to let go of. He also said, where are they now? Where are your experiences now? The now, now, here, now. The mystery of being here. The mystery, no matter how we describe it, it's still a mystery. Even using the word mystery doesn't describe the mystery. It just points us to the unknowableness. Even like we talk about Anicca, Dukkha, Nanata, right? Impermanence, suffering, selflessness. Stephen Batchelor describes it as dynamic, precarious, and selfless. He says, repeatedly embracing the dynamic, the precarious, and the selfless flow of experience gradually erodes this ingrained conviction of our separate existence. To enhance this further still, it helps us to let go not just of attachment to a fixed self, 
but to all views that confine and fix experience. This can be achieved by recognizing that however we describe that even as dynamic, precarious, and selfless, what is happening is utterly mysterious. Utterly mysterious. This life, this breath, this moment. And, Rio, and Jijo goes on, he says, radiant spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. That it's always in the now, always here. The presence, the awareness that's here and now. And then he gives his great line, the spatula by the toilet shines with light. The spatula by the toilet shines with light. It's everywhere. It's everything. It's everyone, this mystery. Anybody notice those purple bushes, right, that are exploding, that are bursting out at us? Where did that purple come from? Has it been hiding in there all winter, waiting to show itself? And it's just screaming at us as we walk by. Look at me. I'm not going to be here for too long. Just like all of us, we're not going to be here for too long. Kabir says, when the eyes and the ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. The Dharma's everywhere. Even the spatula by the toilet is the Dharma. We can awaken right there. And then his sum, he sums it up so beautifully. He says, after all, it was just me all along. Remember the ordinariness John talked about? It's just us. How could it be anywhere else? It's just us. And the paradox, I have one more for you, from the Lotus Sutta. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. You are what you seek. You are what you seek. Whatever has happened to you thus far in this retreat, It's all the Dharma showing itself, revealing itself, displaying itself, teaching you, teaching us. We don't get Buddha nature. We don't get Buddha nature. We are Buddha nature. We are what we seek. I'll end with a quote from Ajahn Chah. He said, in our search for the Dharma, we search too far. We overreach, overlooking the essence. The Dharma is not way out there to be gained by a long voyage or viewed through a telescope. It's right here, nearest to us, our true essence, our true self, no self. When we see this essence, there are no problems, no troubles, good, bad, pleasure, pain, light, dark, self, other, our empty phenomena. If we come to know this essence, 
we die to our old sense of self and become truly free. Let's sit together, please, for a minute. For your presence and practice, we'll have about a half an hour for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.